This is the third week of Advent and the third week of our Advent series. But first, a brief programming note. Advent is traditionally a time for mission outreach and service projects in most churches. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that after communion today. The last two years, we haven't done much in terms of Advent projects for obvious reasons, but also for a not so obvious reason. Three years ago, we saw our largest project ever, the renovation and redevelopment of the Poppleton Rec Center in West Baltimore. We raised half a million dollars in a single weekend and got off to a strong start. And then COVID hit and the world stopped. We didn't feel with that project stalled that we could justify starting another project. And so we chose to take a break instead. But now I'm happy to report this Advent that there's good news and some great progress on the Rec Center project. If you'd like to learn more, we prepared a video presentation. It's available on our website, churchnativity.com slash missions. It's up there right now. But don't go right now because I have some more things to say. Advent is a season of hope, and as we noted last week, if there's a number one hope for the holiday season, an overriding hope, a universal hope, many people would probably say it's peace, peace. We look forward to the promise of peace. And for some reason, the Advent Christmas season, more than any other season of the year, seems to put in focus our desire for peace. While we think easily of peaceful experiences, peaceful environments, moments of peace, feelings of peace, the desire for peace goes far beyond those experiences or environments, far deeper than moments or feelings. You could probably also say, perhaps now, more than ever before in our experience, we feel that desire in an urgent kind of way given the world around us and current events. The collective experience of all of it ensures that peace remains elusive. Many people are feeling that disquiet. Perhaps you are feeling that disquiet. And this is where our desire and God's desire and God's will intersect. All of Scripture, all of Scripture teaches that the coming of the Messiah the long-awaited, often-promised Savior of the world, whose coming Advent remembers and celebrates. All of Scripture describes a correlation between the arrival of the Messiah and the establishment of peace on earth. Scripture tells us that's what God wants. So we want peace. God wants peace for us. What's the problem? Why does it remain so elusive? Well, that's what this series is all about. So in the first week of our series, we looked at a very poetic image given to us by the prophet Isaiah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not raise the sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. Isaiah was given a vision of peace as people come to know God's presence and learn his peaceful ways. The weapons of war 
a metaphor for the various emotional weapons we can use in our conflicts with one another, weapons like anger. Peace is pursued when we set those weapons aside. Last week, we looked at moving beyond just laying aside our weapons of war by embracing our identity as peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God calls us to make peace with one another, bearing with one another, accepting one another, welcoming others as Christ has welcomed us. Today, we're looking at what is fundamental to all of this, what is basic to all of this, what is elemental to this topic. And it's, of course, peace in our hearts. We all want peace in our hearts. No one likes to live with unsettledness or agitation. God doesn't want that for us either. That said, when we're living outside of God's will or outright opposing God, a lack of peace is actually a good sign. It's a grace that God gives us to draw us back to Him. When our conscience is, is bugging us, that might very well be God's grace at work in our life. Sometimes, though, we lack inner peace because of the circumstances we face, often circumstances beyond our control. Lots of people lose their hold on peace in view of financial concerns and considerations, failing health or the fear of failing health, legal troubles, strained or failed relationships, breakups or divorce. If you're in school, it's hard to be entirely at peace in view of exams and deadlines and projects and papers. If you're a parent, your number one stressor is going to be your kids. If you've lost a loved one, grief will rob you of your peace. God doesn't want those situations and circumstances and dozens of others we could easily name to steal our hold on peace. God doesn't want us to lose peace. God wants us to learn peace, to learn to find and hold on to peace. God desires for us a peace that goes beyond circumstances, that goes beyond our human understanding, a peace the world cannot give, a peace the world cannot take away. So, what are we to do when our circumstances disrupt our peace, especially when the circumstances you're facing don't look like they're changing anytime soon. Well, we find a great role model for what we're talking about in the gospel passage we read today from Matthew. Matthew tells us this. When John was in prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John, of course, is John the Baptist. The last time John was mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, he had been in prison for publicly challenging the king, King Herod, about the king's bad behavior. Prisons in antiquity were grim places. The cells were more like cages, squalid, disgusting cages. Prisoners often couldn't even stand up straight in them. The conditions were simply deplorable. 
gospel doesn't tell us how much time John has spent imprisoned at this point, but any amount of time would have been deeply disheartening, deeply disturbing. So what does John do? Well, he worries. He's worried here. How often does that happen? We take a bad situation and we make it worse by worrying. Although, I guess we can take comfort in the fact that if a heroic, iconic figure such as John, someone of the strength and caliber of John, if John the Baptist could find himself worrying, then I guess we can be forgiven for doing it sometimes too. What was he worried about? Well, John had been sure that God had told him to call out the king. And now he was in prison for it, so maybe he was wrong. Maybe he was wrong about other things too. Maybe he was wrong about everything, including his preaching and teaching about Jesus. He was worried that perhaps he'd been on the wrong track his whole life long. At his birth, his father had spoken words of blessing over him and prophesied that he, John, would be the one, the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. All his life, he'd been told of the amazing circumstances that surrounded his birth, that his parents had reached old age, childless, but an angel had appeared to his father and told him that he would have a son who would play a unique role in God's plan. Growing up, his parents would have reminded him over and over again of that unique role. Later in his life, he would adopt the words of the prophet Isaiah when asked, who are you? He would say, I am the voice of the one who cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Those were words he took to heart as his life verse. They were his core conviction about who he was. And now, now he wondered, could I have been wrong? But he couldn't be wrong because he'd seen such blessings play out in his life as he had incredible success in his public ministry. Crowds and crowds of people came out to the desert to hear him preach. There was more than a, a little buzz that surrounded his ministry. John had achieved rock star status, holding the attention of the entire nation, including the nation's leaders. And finally, John announces the arrival of the Messiah in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as a culmination of his whole life's work, he baptizes Jesus, hearing the voice of God the Father, seeing the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. It was an incredible moment. But now, he finds himself in prison, and he's worried. Was I, was I wrong? We can all understand that. We've all been there. But here's where John provides a model for us moving forward. With his deeply unsettled heart, he turns to the Lord and engages with him regarding his worry. He takes his worry to the Lord. Because he was in prison, he can't actually go to Jesus himself. Instead, he sends his disciples to speak for him. And it all basically comes down to a single simple question. Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? The one to come was another title for 
the Messiah. Are you really the Messiah? Or should we be looking somewhere else? Jesus said to them in reply, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Most times we want a simple answer to a simple question, yes or no, are you or aren't you? But Jesus does not give a simple answer to John. Instead, he gives a profound answer. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. Give that report to John. The results speak for themselves. But over and above those miracles, amazing as they were, Jesus himself is now referencing the prophet Isaiah because it was Isaiah who had predicted the definitive sign, the unmistakable sign of the arrival of the Messiah would be precisely the wonderful works Jesus was now performing. Isaiah predicted it all first. We've already noted that the book of Isaiah held a special place in John's heart. So when his disciples come back to, to John repeating Jesus' words, quoting Isaiah, John would have recognized instantly that Jesus was speaking to his heart in a profound way. He had nothing to worry about. You know, Jesus never said, follow me, and I promise, I promise you there won't be any trouble. He never said that. In fact, he assures us the opposite is true. The key to living in God's peace in the face of trouble is faith, an active, confident trust in his presence and power to sustain and comfort you no matter the circumstances. Okay, how? How do I have that kind of faith? It sounds like such a churchy thing to say, just have faith. That's not helpful. How? Well, the key, I think, is conversation. Faith grows in conversation with God, bringing to Him our worries, wrestling with those worries before Him, and taking time to listen to what He might have to say. St. Paul puts it most succinctly, I think, elsewhere in Scripture. St. Paul wrote, have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Whenever you start becoming anxious or upset or worried or something is stealing your peace, turn to God in conversation. And here's a really practical suggestion. Begin with thanksgiving. Begin by thanking God. That's what St. Paul teaches us. Thank God in advance that he's listening to your prayer and that he will answer your prayer. Thanking God in advance is a powerful, a powerful expression of faith that actually builds faith. It's trusting God before you see the results. And when you do, God promises in return to guard your heart. All troubles, any kind of troubles, are always for a season 
and a reason. Trouble is for a season and a reason. In conversation with the Lord, we can always weather the season. And sometimes we can even come to understand the reason. Peace. Peace isn't the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. Thanks for watching. Be sure you hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a thing. You can be part of our mission to love God, love others, and make disciples by sharing this video. We're grateful that you're part of this community.